Well, ladies and gentlemen, this is another episode of the Page Turners Broadcast. If you missed the last episode, uh, episode number 50, yeah, man, 50 episodes of the Page Turners Podcast. On that podcast, I announced that I would be doing an additional book. That book was We Do This Till We Free Us by Mirame Kaba, Abolitionist Organizing and Transforming Justice. This book is a collection of essays. Each essay is surrounding in regards to uh, abolishing the police, the carceral system, all those. And the blurb on the back reads, what if social transformation and liberation are not about waiting for someone else to come along and save us? What if ordinary people have the power to collectively free ourselves? In this timely collection of essays and interviews, Marume Kaba reflects on the deep work of abolition and transformative political struggle. So I am continuing. This will be essay number two. The system isn't broken found in the new inquiry June 2015 Miss K they got me again six words set up the familiar routine a car ride to the station an unwanted and unwelcome conversation with the officer at the desk rudeness contempt and that awful perma smirk Waiting anticipation, false alarms, a reprieve, an escape without ransom, more waiting. Finally, the bowed head and slumped shoulders of a young black man walking toward me. No tears. Where are the tears? Another court date, or maybe not. Another record to expunge, always. Then it starts all over again. I dread summer. It's the season of hyper-surveillance and even more aggressive policing of young people of color in my neighborhood. The urban summer criminalization merry-go-round. A kind of demented child's play. Cotanian terrorism in the service of law and order. Low-intensity police riots against young black people. My anecdotal, my anecdotal rather, my anecdotal observations are supported by empirical data. The ACLU of Illinois says that last summer, based on population, Chicago police made far more street stops than New York City police did at the height of their use of stop and frisk. The CPD stopped more than 250,000 innocent people. Unsurprisingly, the vast majority of those stops involved black people who, while making up 32% of Chicago's population, were 72% of the stops. Some studies suggest a correlation between summer and a rise in crime. I can hear the justification. If crime increases in the summer, then more police aggression is justified. This fails to take into account that routine interactions between police and young people in my community are fraught all year long. Summer exacerbates these oppressive contexts. 
because many more young people are out of school, usually without jobs, hanging out in public spaces. Public spaces in urban and suburban towns are contested. Residents collude with law enforcement to police enforce boundaries. Young people of color are criminalized not only by the police, but also by community members. Yesterday, yet another video went viral on social media. It depicts police officers in McKinney, Texas, swarming a pool party filled with teenagers and one particular officer manhandling a 14-year-old black girl wearing a bikini. The young people are cursed at, have a gun pointed at them, and are taunted for being afraid of the police. 15-year-old Miles Jai Thomas explains what happened. So a cop grabbed her arm and flipped her to the ground after she and him were arguing about him cursing at us, Thomas said. When two teens went towards the cop to help the girl, they were accused of sneaking up on the cop to attack. So a cop yelled, get those motherfuckers, and they chased us with guns out. That's why in the video I started running, Thomas said. I was scared because all I can think of was, don't shoot me, he said. Watching the video, I was struck by how young people were denied the right to be afraid. Their fear was illegitimate, and it makes sense. Only human beings are allowed to be afraid. For the cops, these youth of color, mostly black, are not human. I dread summer. I attended a conference recently about youth police actions. The familiar trope about the need for young people and cops to get to know each other was band-aid out. Useless, useless, useless. As a solution for ending police violence, which relies on a faulty definition of the problem, as a young person once told me, I know the cops here very well, and they know me. We know each other too well. That's not the problem. The problem is that they harass me daily. If they stop that, we'd be fine. The young people in my community who come in contact with the police can recite their names and badge numbers. Those are unforgettable to them. The stuff of their nightmares. It's unclear to me how their conversations will change the dynamics of such oppression. For most of the public, whether liberal or conservative, it's the cop's job to arrest people and are incentivized to do the work. Presumably, then, what we need to change to shift the dynamics are the job descriptions and the incentives. A persistent and seemingly endemic feature of U.S. society is the conflation of blackness and criminality. William Patterson, a well-known black communist, wrote in 1970, A false brand of criminality is constantly stamped on the brow of black youth by the courts and systemically kept there creating the fiction that blacks are criminally-minded people. He added that, The lies against blacks are propped up ideologically. I would suggest that they are also maintained and enforced through force and violence. When Baltimore police dressed in riot gear turned their violence on high school students at Mondawin Mall a few weeks ago, some people were horrified. These are children, onlookers exclaimed on social media. I thought grimly of how the cops would see the situation. There are no children here, only targets and threats. Social science research suggests that cops see black children as older and as less innocent than their white peers. 
The research confirms that most of us already know. Black children are considered to be disposable and dangerous many adults. This is not new. I came across the story of 13-year-old Beverly Lee when I read the 1951 We Charge Genocide petition many years ago. Lee was in the back of a Detroit police officer on October 12, 1947. Here's the item that piqued my interest as it appeared in We Charge Genocide. Beverly Lee, 13-year-old youth, was shot to death by patrolman Louis Begin of Detroit, Michigan. Miss Frances Von Bette of 1839 Pine testified that she saw Lee and another walking down the street and saw the squad car approach. She heard, stop you little so-and-so, and then a shot. The officer was subsequently cleared by Coroner Lee K. Babcock. I was particularly interested in the incident because I thought that Beverly was a girl. And police violent cases involving black girls and young women have been overlooked. In fact, I haven't found any historical incidents of police violence against black women and girls that led to mass mobilization. Current campaigns such as Say Her Name point to the enduring erasure of street violence against black girls and women. The incident in McKinney, Texas featured physical violence against a black girl underscoring the fact that girls, cis and trans, are consistently at risk of law enforcement abuse. On further research, I learned that Beverly Lee was actually a boy. On the day after Beverly Lee was shot, the Detroit News reported on the incident. Shot in the back as he tried to evade arrest, a 7th grade school boy was killed by a Detroit police officer late Sunday. The boy, Beverly Lee, 13 of 2637 12th Street, was shot by patrolman Lewis McGinn of the Trumbull Station when he disregarded orders to halt. McGinn and his partner, patrolman William Owens, were called to Temple and Vermont Avenues, where Miss Mabel Gee, 1930 Temple, reported her purse stolen. Approaching the intersection, they saw Lee order him to stop and Owens fired a warning shot. Begin shot him as he continued to run away from the scout car. A watch belonging to Miss Gee and $18, the amount she said was in her purse, were found in the boy's pockets. The purse was recovered nearby. Begin and Owens made statements to William D. Brustar, assistant prosecutor. They said Miss Gee referred to her assailants as a man, and when they encountered him, they thought he was an adult. Lee was about five feet, six inches tall. Other victims of recent purse snatching were being invited to view the body at the county morgue. Lee attended Cordon Intermediate School. His body was identified by his mother, Miss Leah Lee. The discrepancy between these two accounts is unsurprising. As we have so often seen, there's usually a variance between initial press reports and official police accounts and community narratives. Notice that the cops and the alleged robbery suspects said that they thought Lee was an adult. The adultification of black children has long and deep roots that date back to chattel slavery. In fact, before the Civil War, half of all enslaved people were under 16 years old. <laughs> 
Enslaved children were property and were expected to work. Children as young as six years old worked the fields. Beverly was the third black boy killed by police that year in Detroit. Community members were furious and organized protests over Lee's killings. Despite the uproar, only eight days after the shooting, the prosecutor closed the investigation into Lee's death, calling it justifiable homicide. The Detroit NAACP met with the prosecutor and called for an inquest into the facts to the case. They presented him with the signed statements of witnesses contradicting his findings. It appears that the community led by the NAACP continued to organize around Lee's case without success. Charges were not brought against Lee, against Officer Biggin. Police impunity has a long history in this country. In the end, a 13-year-old black boy was shot in the back by police and died. To quote Ozzie Davis, black people understand that we live with death and it is ours. Most often, it's police shootings and killings that spark open uprisings. However, the daily indignities and more invisible harms are ever-present and are the foundation of hostilities between young people of color and police. Routine state violence carried out by the police happens outside of public view under the guise of addressing gun and other forms of violence. If past is prologue, my community can look forward to another summer of intense, restless, relentless, and surely illegal police harassment of young people of color, specifically of young black men. Young people ride their bikes on the sidewalks instead of being ticketed as prescribed by law, will be hauled into police lockup. They'll be accused of resisting arrest, then funneled into Cook County Jail. Teenagers leaving summer programming will be followed by cop cars and asked where they're heading. One crossword will lead to being roughly thrown on a car's hood in front of the whole neighborhood. Walking through alleys as shortcuts to home from work, young people will be hounded, provoked, and dragged into the station, but not before being beaten in the car without any concern for health conditions like seizures. Trans and gender non-conforming youth will be bullied and verbally harassed for walking down the street. Young people will be picked up without cause and driven into rival gang territories to be dumped without wallets or phones, only to hear the cops announce for all to hear that they belong to the rival gang. Young women walking down the street minding their own business will be sexually harassed by those sworn to protect and serve. I dread summer. Besides stopping frisk and other violations, young people in my community are also subjected to warrantless searches of their homes. One young person I know narrated this experience in the 2014 We Charge Genocide Report to the United Nations Committee Against Torture. We're sitting in our house playing video games, and we hear a banging on the door. Before we know it, the door is kicked down, and there's five special ops officers with their huge M16s drawn pointed at us three 15-year-olds playing video games. And they tell us to get on the ground. They say if we move, they're going to kill us. I quote, Don't look at me. We'll fucking kill you in a second. End quote. Pointing their guns at us. Then they don't find anything. They let us all go. They laugh. 
tried to joke with us, apologized, and leave out. And we're sitting there like, what just happened? They tear up the house. They stole money. Lest you think that this is an innovation of zero-tolerance militarized policing born out of the war on drugs, here's an example from 18 years ago, 80 years ago, sorry, and I read, when the people of Harlem rioted in 1935, it was once again an incident of police violence that lit the fuse. A rumor that Lino Rivera, a 16-year-old black Puerto Rican kid, was killed by New York City police led to nearly 4,000 Harlem Knights taken to the streets. 700 police officers were dispatched to the community. When all was said and done, three people died and more than 200 million in damages were sustained from the riot. In the aftermath, Mayor LaGuardia commissioned a report to understand the causes of the uprising. In a section titled The Police in Harlem, the report's authors maintained that cops routinely entered the homes of black Harlem Knights without warrant and searched them at will. Instead of drugs, Harlem cops in the 1930s were searching for policy slips in efforts to crack down on illegal gambling. Reprinted in the report was a letter by Harlem resident addressed to the mayor. Below are a few excerpts. On Tuesday morning, April 16, 1935, between 10 and 11 o'clock, the superintendent of the house rapped at my door. Upon opening, I was confronted with three men who the superintendent said were policemen. He explained that the men were searching the house for what he did not know. The men entered the room, proceeded to search without showing shields or search warrants. I asked twice of two of the men what was the reason for such action. I received no action from them. My dresser drawers were thoroughly gone into, dresser cover even being raised. My bed came in for a search. Covers were dragged off and mattresses overturned. Suitcase under my bed was brought up and searched. My overcoat hanging on the door was gone over and into. My china closet was open and glassware examined. After the startling act, the men left my room still without saying a word. These types of violations span centuries for black people and are one reason for racial disconnects in discussions about privacy and civil liberties. Black people have always been under the gaze of the state, and we know that our rights are routinely violated. Civil liberties and individual rights have different meanings for different groups of people. They also have different priorities, depending on social context. A review of black history suggests that considerations of civil liberties are always embedded within the concepts of equality and social justice. In other words, by design or necessity, black people have focused on our collective rights over our individual liberties. This makes sense in a society where we don't just assume individual black guilt and suspicion. We are all guilty, and we are all suspicious, even if we may want to deny this reality. In that context, individual liberties and rights take a back seat to collective struggle for emancipation and freedom. Additionally, as a people, 
We have always known that it is impossible for us to exercise our individual rights within a context of more generalized social, economic, and political oppression. History offers evidence of the intractability of the problem of police violence. What should we do then? Quite simply, we must end the police. The hegemony of police is so complete that we often can't begin to imagine a world without the institution. We are too reliant on the police. In fact, the police increase their legitimacy through all of the non-police related work that they assume, including during wellness and mental health checks. Why should armed people be deployed to do the work of community members and social workers? Why have we become so comfortable with ceding so much power to the police? Any discussion of reform must begin with the following questions. How will we decrease the numbers of police and how will we defund the institution? On the way to abolition, we can take a number of intermediate steps to shrink the police force and to restructure our relationship with each other. These include... One, organizing for dramatic decreases in police budgets and redirect those funds to other social goods. Two, ending cash bail. Three, overturning police bill of rights. Four, abolishing police unions. Five, crowding out the police in our communities. Six, disarming the police. 7. Creating abolitionist messages that penetrate the public consciousness to disrupt the idea that cops equal safety. 8. Building community-based interventions that address harms without relying on police. 9. Evaluating any reforms based on these criteria. 10. Thinking through the end of the police and imagining alternatives. Importantly, we must reject all talk about policing and overall criminal punishment system being broken or not working. By rhetorically constructing the criminal punishment system as broken, reform is reaffirmed and abolition is painted as unrealistic and unworkable. Those of us who maintain that reform is actually impossible within the current context are positioned as unreasonable and naive. Ideological formations often operate invisibly to delineate and define what is acceptable discourse. Challenges to dominant ideological formations about justice are met with anger, ridicule, or are simply ignored. This is the service of those who benefit from the current system and works to enforce white supremacy and anti-blackness. The losers under this injustice system are the young people I know and love. I really dread summer. Ladies and gentlemen, the system isn't broken. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Page Turners Podcast. I am your host, Elgin Bailey. As always, study and fight, family. This episode of the Page Turners Podcast is distributed by Keystone Digital. Dot TV. Till next time.